Um, I, here's what I want to do really quickly before I jump in. I, I wanted to mention a couple things that I didn't mention last week when we were talking about, you know, eat and speak and our approach to Bible reading and the New Testament 90 days and all that stuff. Uh, a really important thing. Please, please, please consider including your children. Uh, especially, obviously, if you have uh, reading age children, do this with them. Like, include them in this. Get them a journal. They have their own thing. They can pray through their pen to their maker as they're reading through his word, as their parents are reading through their word. Teach them how to do eat and speak. It's very, very simple. Examine, right? What does it say about me? What does it say about God? What, is it, what, what does the scripture say? I'm examining myself. I'm examining the word. I'm examining him. I'm, I'm abiding, I'm connecting with him, I'm praying with him, I'm receiving from him, I'm doing it with him, and then I'm tasting the reality of, of his goodness, of his grace, of his glory, and I'm gonna share with other people my experience. A, a, a first grader who can read can do this with us. So I wanna encourage you. I don't wanna, I, we cannot be the church uh, that functions as a family if our kids are excluded from our discipleship as well. You guys with me in this? So I encourage you, man oh man, like include your kids in this I also wanted to share one more thing quickly before I jump in uh, that I think might be helpful. What we didn't do last week is we didn't give you like a practical um, example of what it actually looks like. We described it, I feel like, and pretty thoroughly, but I was with uh, my gospel community last week at our Lord's Supper gathering, and we kind of went through, I think, forget who it was, but somebody asked, like, hey, like, how, this is, this makes sense, but, like, how would we do this? So we literally just, I said, okay, somebody threw out a psalm, and somebody threw out Psalm 23, which is, like, the most famous psalm. I love Psalm 23. It's, like, incredible. And I was like, okay, let's just do this really, really quick with the first verse in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. That's the very first verse. So, we're not going to move past that. Okay, what, let's examine this. What does it say? Okay, it's saying that, that God is my shepherd and I have what I need. All right, that's the examine piece, okay? We can examine what it says. Uh, that, that it has implications of, of, for me as a sheep. It says that God's a shepherd. Okay, I want to abide now. The E in the eat and speak. I want to abide. God, I want to do this with you. Like, show me. Teach me. What, what does it mean that you're my shepherd? And somebody in the gospel community said, um, oh, like it, it means that he's kind of like our protector amongst various different things, right? So we're, we're in prayer, we're abiding with God in light of what we're examining. And somebody goes, oh, it means that he's our protector. And then you move to the taste piece, which is like ex- experiencing his goodness. And oh man, like if I'm, as I'm struggling with, I don't know, worry, or anxiety, or I'm, f- I'm not feeling secure in life, man, to know that I have a shepherd who is protecting me as his sheep, if I actually start to believe that, I start to taste, like, like we talked about, like honey on my lips, like I start to taste that and experience that, that brings me, man, that brings me a ton of peace. So it's this idea of, do you see how you can work through one verse through eat, and then I can speak that, I can share that with somebody else. Yeah, like I was, I was in Psalm 23 on the first verse and I didn't get past the first verse because it was this beautiful reality that, that, that God is my shepherd and he's like protecting me as part of his flock. And that when I feel anxiety, like I don't have to be worried because he's my protector. The God of the universe is my protector. 
and I share that with somebody else who maybe is experiencing some worry or some concern in their life, now it's spreading like wildfire these beautiful truths of who God is and what he's done and what that means for us all through one verse of eating and speaking. Are you tracking with me? I just want to make sure we put that in front of us because we're starting this campaign tomorrow as a church and I want everybody to be included, get on board and enjoy the party, okay? So I highly recommend journaling. If, like, like, like we said before, if money is an issue keeping you from getting one, please go get one. Put the stickers in there. I think it will be hugely helpful. There's something about praying through your pen that is just powerful, okay? So there's that. Now, let's jump into the message. Question for you this morning to start things off. Why are you here today? Think about it. Why are you here today? It's a super important question. I want you to actually formulate an answer to that question in your mind right now. Why are you here today? And don't try to give like the, the right answer to the test. Like if you could figure it out, you know, that's, that, there's no wrong answers other than the dishonest answer. Okay? Like just be real with yourself. Why are you here right now? No wrong answers. For some of you, maybe it's like, this is just what my family does on Sundays. That's cool. It's great. For others of you, you're like, oh, I, I'm here because I, I, I'm here to see people that I just love. It's beautiful. It's amazing. For others of you, it's, I, I, I want to learn more about God and the Bible. And for others of you, it's like, if it was up to me, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> Like, I'm here to make somebody else happy or somebody else brought me here or whatever, right? Why are you here today? Formulate the answer in your mind. And by extension, why are all of us here in this room on a Sunday today? That's what we're going to talk about. The why, okay? Uh, We are in a series that we're calling Reset, and it's this idea of renewing our devotion to Jesus and his ways. We're coming out of a a gnarly season as as a humanity, uh, 2020 and all that it was, and it's had significant impacts on our discipleship following Jesus, Um, not just as a church, but as a world. But I want to focus in on us as a church. We're we're hitting the reset button. We're reprioritizing our discipleship strategies as a church. And we would define a disciple as someone who's learning. Disciple means learner. Someone who's learning how to enjoy Jesus, obey Jesus, and operate like Jesus in every single area of life. That's what we're talking about, okay? It's all centered on our our devotion to him in response to his devotion to us. The Christian life is a response. And we've talked about so far in this series, we have two main strategies for all of us to grow as disciples, okay? If you, are, if you have an objective, which in our case is to grow as a disciple, how are we going to uh, achieve that objective? We're going to achieve that objective through two strategies, through belonging to gospel community and through Sunday worship gatherings, okay? And hear me say this, for our church family, this is not like an either or thing. It's not like, hey, take your pick, this or that, I want, you to think of, I want you to think of our two discipleship strategies as like, like pedals on a bike, okay? Pedals on a bike. If you want to move forward in your discipleship to Jesus, it's going to require both, okay? They both serve equal purposes. Today is about answering the question, why are we here? Sunday worship gathering, why are we here? What's the point? 
Because if we don't know why we do what we do, we are living an empty life. Just kind of like checking our minds at the door, just cruising through life and missing all of the beauty and all of God's presence and everything that we give ourselves to. You guys with me? Awesome. Okay, grab your Bibles. We are going to be in Acts chapter 2 again this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words will be on the screen for you because of our incredible, amazing, handsome tech team. Thanks, guys. Okay, uh, before we jump into Acts chapter 2, I'm going to pray for us. So join me, huh? Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace and your love and your provision your faithfulness to us, like we sang this morning already. Um, Our desire is that you would teach us, Holy Spirit. Um, Maybe that you would uh, reveal to us some, some, some of the things that are happening in our heart that might be keeping us from experiencing you in more intimate and profound and powerful ways. And Lord, I wanna, I wanna, I don't wanna do anything to get in the way of what you wanna accomplish this morning, so will you help me? to love and to serve and to honor my church family and anybody visiting with us this morning. Yeah, we look to you now. We recognize this is your word, your word. Thank you, God. We love you. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41. These verses should seem really familiar by now, okay? Here we go. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Uh, Early church, the beginning of the church, birth of the church, okay? Brand new converts, brand new believers. They get baptized. They hear Peter preach a message. They get baptized. And then it says this in verse 42, they devoted themselves to a bunch of stuff. They devoted themselves, brand new baby Christians, right? Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. I love like the picture that Kevin told us about during family time. That's verse 45. Verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Okay, that's our passage. Um, I want to hone in today on verse 46. We've, we've, we've talked a lot about this passage the last several weeks. I want to hone in on verse 46, and I want you to look at it for a second. Okay, there are two things in verse 46 that the early church devoted themselves to. Do you see what they were? Somebody tell me. Don't be shy. Breaking bread from house to house. And what about the temple? Meeting together in the temple, right? So think of the breaking, breaking bread from house to house. That's essentially talking about the Lord's Supper together as the family of God. Okay, that's what we do with gospel community. Gospel community is not an event. You don't go to gospel community. Gospel community is a people. You go to the Lord's Supper gathering where we all gather around the table as a really diverse group of people. And what brings us to that table is not you know, sharing the same hobbies. It's not having the same amount of zeros in our bank account. It's not the same color of skin or the same background or the same sin tendencies or none of that stuff. 
what brings us to that table, to the Lord's Supper, is the body and the blood of Jesus poured out for our sins. We've been reconciled to God, and now we are the truest family that there's ever been. A transcendent spiritual family. Okay, that, a gospel community is not an event, right? So they broke bread from house to house. It was this beautiful picture of them being the family of God together in homes. Okay? And then it also says that they met together in the temple. So two gathering places, house to house, and the temple. Okay? And did you notice it says that they met in these two ways how often? Every day. Do you know what that means? That means every day, yes. That means that this was a big priority in their life. What other things do you do every day? Sleep, probably, hopefully. I see some young parents in the room, or I should say young babies in the room, and maybe not for some of us, but God bless you. <clears throat> but they do this every day. Huge priority in their lives, okay? So listen, for us to understand this gathering... We talked about GCs at length before. If you've missed any of the messages prior, I highly encourage you to go check those out. I'm running short on time already this morning. So I want to focus in on Sundays, right? So for us to understand this gathering that you're sitting in right now, what we call Sunday worship gathering, we have to understand something really important that we see here in Acts chapter 2. We have to understand what's going on with these temple meetings. They met there every day, okay? Now, I want to give you a warning. Anybody really tired this morning? If you are, to be honest, raise your hand. Okay, a lot of us, we are in trouble. Okay, here's your warning. Today's message is going to be like heavy teaching. So there's going to be a lot of information coming at you. Brace yourself, like put your seatbelt on, like get your mind. If you need to get up and do jumping jacks, they kind of get your blood flow. Because if anybody starts nodding off, I'm just going to, I'm just going to bounce, Okay. I'm I'm totally kidding. But I want you to be, it might be tough, but I want you to give me your ears for a bit because there's so much beauty. If you can get through, if you can get through about 20, 25 minutes of some teaching, there's some some intense life-changing beauty for you. You with me? Okay, wonderful. Now, here we go. The Bible. If you want to understand the story of the Bible, you could sum it up kind of like this. The, the, The Bible is a story about God's intense desire to be with his people. From beginning to the end, God's intense desire to be with his people, okay? Track with me. You have the beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden. God creates all things and they're perfect. They're so good. He creates man and he creates woman and man and woman are in perfect relationship with each other and perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with creation. It's perfection, man. It's paradise. It's things the way that they're supposed to be. And then we know what happens, right? They, they reject against God. They sin against God. They reject him and his ways, which is something every single person of us in the room is guilty of. And what happens is, is now there's separation between God and humanity, Is that separation that wasn't there prior to. And now, for the first time ever, because of sin, it's dangerous for people to be in God's presence. It's dangerous for the the sinner to be in the holy God's presence. You with this idea? Super important, okay? Not because God's mean, not because he's bad, but because he's so good. So the question becomes then, If the whole Bible is about God's desire to be with his people, how can a holy God be with his sinful people without his presence fully destroying them? 
How is that possible? Exodus chapter 25, you guys want to throw that up there quick? Exodus chapter 25, God is brilliant. I don't know if you know that. He has a plan. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse one here. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites, the people of God, to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. I love that. It's got to be voluntary. Verse three, this is the offering you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat hair, ram skins dyed red and fine leather, acacia wood is all this stuff, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and an onyx, along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and breastpiece. The ephod and the breastpiece just think like the uniform of the priests. Why? Why all the offering? Here it is, verse 8. They are to make a sanctuary for me, underline sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them, underline dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle, underline the tabernacle, as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. Okay. God gives them instructions to build a sanctuary where his presence will dwell, called the tabernacle, so that his presence can be with his people, okay? He wants to dwell with them. Uh, you guys familiar with a tabernacle? A tabernacle is basically a big tent. Think almost kind of like the circus. The big, huge mobile tent, okay? So it's a mobile structure. They could pack it up and take it with them wherever they go on their journey to the promised land, which is what was happening here. Will you guys throw the picture of the tabernacle up there? I think I have it. No, that's the temple. The next one is the tabernacle. There it is. You guys see this? This is like a rendering from, uh, of, of, the, of the tabernacle to God's specifications. You can see the ropes and you can see how it's, it's all mobile. There's different altars. And do you see the main tent in the middle there? Inside that, that was what was called the Holy of Holies. So that was like the, 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 the epicenter of God's manifest presence. You tracking with me? This is where God's holy presence would dwell. Okay, and, 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 and the holy of holies, think of that, like I said, like the epicenter. It's almost like the sun. God's presence is like the sun, right? If you get too close to it in your center, it's dangerous for you. Okay, not because he's bad, but because he's so good. So the, the, the thing of the, it, of the presence of God radiating out of the epicenter, the holy of holies there. Okay, but again, think about this. How? How? Can God's holy presence be there without it destroying sinful people? You've heard of blood sacrifices, right? Them, them, them slaying animals on the altar. That's how. So animals, they were, they were sacrificed on the altar of, uh, of these various altars, right? To absorb the punishment for the sins of the people. Okay, Why? so that God's holy presence wouldn't destroy the people. So think of it this way. It's the animals in place of the people. The outcome, the result of sin, because God is loving and just, it must be death. That's, just, that's the way God has created things. Sin, the result of sin, the wages of sin is death. Separation from God, destruction, it's awful. But God is just. He doesn't just overlook sin. He's loving and you can't separate, you can't have a loving God with a just God. I don't, wanna, I don't have time to get into that too much, but I want you to understand this. In the simplest terms, the animals were a substitute for the people. 
Why? So that the people can enjoy God's presence without it killing them. Not because God is so bad and mean, but because he's so good. Are you, are you, are you understanding this? I need, I can't move on. And, yeah, great. Awesome. Now think about this. Th- put yourself in the position of these, of these people, of the people of God pre-Jesus, right? Man, these people would have been keenly aware of the effects of their sin. Like super aware. Because there's so much blood. Like the, 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 the piles of the animals would be stacking up. The, 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 the sin offerings to God, the sacrifices because like literally the, the sheer number of their sins every day required a blood sacrifice. Not because God's mean or because he's bad, but because he desires to be present with his people. And without that, his holy presence would destroy them. Now, obviously things are different now. We don't do that anymore. But I think that we have to camp here for a second. Because we could just think that this is like a, you know, a ancient kind of custom, an ancient practice, and that's brutal. Yeah, it's absolutely brutal. But listen, these people, they faced the, the, the reality of the effects of their sins on the regular, man. Like they saw it. You and I, we're no different than these people. We sin every single day just like them. We're just like them. So here's my question for you. When was the last time that you truly felt the weight of your sin? Like not dismissing it. I don't want to talk about it. It's it's shameful. It's embarrassing. It's heavy. It's, when was the last time you actually felt the weight of your sin? Like when was the last time you were deeply grieved by your sin? Not somebody else's sin. Not the person that you live with, Sid. It's way easier to see than ours. When was the last time the reality of the effects of sin, was the last time you felt that? I wonder if slaughtering an innocent animal would have any effect on how we view our sin. I think it would. It certainly did these people. And listen, they could have taken a pass they could have taken a pass on the animal sacrifices, but then they'd be taking a pass on their substitute. If they take a pass on their substitute, it means that they're taking a pass on God and his presence. I want you to see this. I want you to see more than anything. I want you to see the lengths that God has gone to to be with his sinful people. His desire is to be with them. It's messy and it's brutal, but at the same time, it's beautiful. Do you see it? It's absolutely beautiful. God could just kill these people. When, he's, when they sin against him, when they reject him in his ways, he could go, okay, you've rejected me. Just king. You don't want me? You don't have to have me. He could just kill these people when they sin against them, but he doesn't. God is devoted to his people and he's devoted to being with them. Listen, God has been gracious from the beginning. People will talk about like Old Testament God, New Testament God. No, the whole story. He just wants to be with his sinful people. And he goes to great lengths to make that possible. And it's grace. Like, think about it. If God is truly the most glorious, if he's truly the most amazing, if he's truly the most satisfying being in the universe, what's the most loving thing that he could give us? Himself. 
He's not egotistical, but he's holy and he's glorious. I've heard people talk about things like, you know, well, yeah, God made man and, image, man and woman in his image because he's lonely. And we, we believe in a triune God, the Trinity, right? That means one God made of three persons existing eternally. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God. Like he existed before the beginning. Like he's one God, three persons, right? Each person of the Trinity existing eternally to glorify the other two. On top of that, you have an army of angels worshiping God for all of eternity. God's not lonely. He's not like, man, I really wish that, like these, like, I really want to be worshiped and that's what gods are supposed to be, which is worshiped. And like, I need to make these people so that, no, he's like fully sufficient and satisfied in himself, the, the beautiful, eternal, holy, heavenly community that is God and his created angels worshiping and adoring him. They haven't stopped saying holy, holy, holy forever. One song, we do several on a Sunday. They, one song and they haven't moved on. They're just like, oh, he's, he's amazing. Unsearchable are your ways. God's not lonely he doesn't need anything from his people. He's not needy. He doesn't need anything from them. God is devoted to being with his sinful people, not because he needs them, but because they need him. That's his personality. That's what he's like. So, tabernacle, place of worship. Okay? It's where the people of God came, where they could be in his presence without destroying them, and they could worship him. You guys know what worship means. It's worship, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Worship, it comes from the word worship. It comes from the old English word, weoskipe. And what it means is it means to ascribe worth. So, so I'm ascribing ultimate worth to something. We're always worshiping. It's like if you have a laser pointer strapped to your chest that's on at all times, whatever you're pointing it at, it's always pointed at something. You're always worshiping. You're always ascribing worth to something, someone, whatever it is. So this, this tabernacle, it was a place where the people of God would offer sacrifices. It was a, people, a place where they, would, they could be in the presence of God to worship him, to ascribe worth to him through these various offerings. Of, of, they could praise him. They, they could enjoy him these various ways that they worshiped him, they're, they're known as offerings. So that's the tabernacle. Okay, I want to fast forward now in the story of God. Fast forward to after the people of God, they arrive in the promised land and God has them build a temple. Okay, show the picture of the temple now. So this is the temple. This is the, I, hate to, I don't want to use the word permanent because it got destroyed, but this is the like established building that served the same purpose as the temple or as the tabernacle. Okay? The difference between the tabernacle and the temple was simply mobility. They could set up shop anywhere they wanted with the tabernacle. This is an established building. Okay? And they serve the same purpose. The tabernacle and the temple, they serve the same perfect purpose, except for the temple was an established building. So, just to kind of review here. The tabernacle and the temple, it was a place where God's presence was, a place where people could enjoy his presence and worship him through various offerings. Are we all clear on the purpose of the temple and the tabernacle? Great. All right, that's phase one. 
in God's desire, his pursuit to be present with his sinful people post the fall, post sin entering into the equation. Okay, you guys know what the next phase is? The next phase is Jesus, baby. The next phase is Jesus. Look at for, uh, John chapter one, verse 14. It says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Where it says the word, this will be a review for many of you, but some of you haven't heard this before and it's absolutely beautiful. Where it says the word there, we talked about in Genesis chapter one, you have the triune God before the beginning, right? Father, son, spirit, each person of the Trinity, one God, but three persons. That second person of the Trinity, you see it show up in Genesis chapter one. You have God, then you have God speaking through his word and creating things, right? God said, let there be light. He said, and stuff was created. And then you have God's spirit hovering over the waters. All three persons in the Trinity show up right there. When it talks about the word becoming flesh, that's the second person of the Trinity, God's words, right? The second person, God's word of the Trinity, put on flesh in the person of Jesus, And it says, he dwelt among us. I love this. The literal translation of when it says he dwelt among us, it says this. It would would read this way. He tabernacled among us. You get the picture? You see what God's up to here. It says he tabernacled among us. It's the same idea as the tabernacle. The purpose of the tabernacle, the purpose of the temple was for God to be what? With his sinful people. And the next phase of that is God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus. And listen, the layers of beauty in John chapter one, verse 14, you could camp out in this verse for a year. There's so much here. I wanna give you one thing though, okay? Here's one layer of beauty for you. We talked about what the temple and the tabernacle is, right? Jesus became the new temple where God's presence dwelt on the earth. And not only that, but we read later in John where he says that that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Are you starting to get the picture here? Okay, Jesus was the substitutionary lamb to end all other substitutionary lambs. He was the substitutionary lamb that was sacrificed on the altar of the cross. Why? To pay for your sins? Yes. But it's more than that. Why were the animals sacrificed at the temple? Give me an answer. To cover for sins, yes. But why? Bingo. So that God can be with his people. The goal, the whole point is to be with us. He wants to be with his people. Animals are sacrificed at the temple so sinful people can be in the presence of God without his holy presence killing them, right? Look at Mark chapter 15, verses 37 and 38. The beauty continues. The purpose is the brilliance of almighty God. Guys, look at this. It says this, Jesus, this is about, right before he's about to die. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. 
Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain, it's what separated God's manifest presence inside the temple from the outside world. We talk about the Holy of Holies, right? That, that epicenter of God's presence, there's a curtain there that separated his manifest presence from the outside world. When Jesus dies, that, cur- that curtain tears. So do you see what this means? Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice to end all the other sacrifices. In other words, no more blood sacrifices were necessary for God's sinful people to be in his holy presence because Jesus' blood handled every sin, past, present, future. It cleansed the people. In the same way that you would take a lamb every day or whatever, Jesus is the singular the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why? Yes, to take away the sins of the world, but why? So that sinful people can be in the presence of a holy God. God's desire to be with his people. And then what happens next? The beauty continues, man. This is the best. If you know the story, you know what happens next. What happens after Jesus' crucifixion is his resurrection and his ascension. The ascension is absolutely vital. Because the ascension, Jesus says, I'm going to go so that I can what? Send the Spirit. The day of Pentecost happens, right? And the day of Pentecost happens right before our original passage that we read in Acts chapter 2. Right before it, okay? Where the first Christians were filled with God's Spirit. Think about this. They're filled with God's Spirit. Are you getting it yet? Are you seeing the picture? You're seeing what God's doing, his plan from the beginning. You see how awesome this is. In the past, animals were sacrificed so that God's presence could dwell in the temple. Now, God sacrifices himself on the cross so that his presence can dwell not in a building, but in each and every one of his people. Friends, that's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian is. You want to know the best definition of a Christian? There's a lot of definitions out there. You could listen to a lot of different people, some that are really helpful, some that are not so helpful. The one that I hear most is a Christian is a person who believes in Jesus Christ. I think that's that's an irresponsible definition. Uh, if If you read the book of James in the New Testament, he literally says, the demons believe. The demons believe. So it, it, being a Christian, it, it must mean more than just acknowledging that something is true. Friends, a Christian is a person that God has taken residence in. It, it, it's a person who has become a temple of God, a person who is literally housing God's spirit. That's what a Christian is. Here's my question for you. And you, please answer this in your heart. Have you received God's spirit? If you have, you'd know. Have you received his spirit? If you haven't, it, that's okay. It just means you're not yet a Christian. But his desire, ooh, his desire isn't going anywhere. He wants to make his home in you. 
Have you received God's spirit? You might be like, how do I know? I think so. How do you know if you've received God's spirit? You know you've received God's spirit if you live like a person housing God's spirit. In other words, you live like Jesus lived. The, the original first human to house God's spirit as a new temple. And, and you live that way. You live, the way like, you live like a person who houses God's spirit. And when you don't live that way, you'll repent. That's how you know if you have the spirit. The spirit leads us into repentance. Repentance is more than just, oh, I'm sorry. Repentance is I'm sorry and I'm stopping. So I'm, I'm stopping sin. I'm, I'm doing things God's way. I, I'm recognizing that I'm not doing things God's way and I'm stopping that. It's, it's, it's more than just remorse. It absolutely includes remorse. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's I'm sorry and I'm stopping. It's, it's remorse and returning to God's way. You with me in this? That's repentance. Nobody in the room is perfect. All of us, disciples of Jesus, practicing repentance. That's when you know you're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit leads us in repentance. So listen. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, the presence of God is no longer limited to a temple. I should say the temple, traditionally. Because the curtain tore. It tore. The people of God are the new temple where God's presence dwells. So, do you see the lengths that God has gone to to be with you? Christians are the new temple housing the presence of God on the earth. It's not my opinion. I'm going to read you some passages quick, just a couple of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. This is Paul writing to the, to the church in Corinth. He says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple, I love, I love this, is holy. And that is what you are. You know what I love about that passage? Whenever it says you, it's plural. So instead of you, it's y'all. There is no, oh, I'm going to be very careful here. Practicing the way of Jesus in isolation is an oxymoron. Practicing the way of Jesus in isolation, that means by yourself, is an oxymoron. Uh, one more for you. First Peter chapter two. So not just Paul, Peter agrees with him. Uh, verse five, I have this in the New Living Translation because I really like it. It says this, and you, Christians, are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So where you had the physical temple with the priests who were offering sacrifices on behalf of the people, Peter's like, no, all of you are like stones, living stones in the new temple that's housing God. And not just are you stones, but you're like priests where you're offering your own sacrifices. You're not, you're not relying on a priest to offer your sacrifices for you. You do it yourself. You guys getting this picture? Again, the you here, plural. Paul and Peter. 
if you've ever read the New Testament, like Paul has these letters to different churches. They deal with all kinds of different things, right? And oftentimes, in most of them, I think, not all of them, but most of them, he starts it out by saying like, hi, this is from Paul, the apostle called by God himself. And then he says, to the church in Corinth or the church in Galatia or the church in Thessalonica or whatever, right? And, and if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that there's this, there's this beautiful portion of it where Jesus writes seven letters to churches. And in those same things, it's, 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 he's writing it to a church. And in each of those examples, in Paul's letters and in Revelation with Jesus' letters, the word there for church is the Greek word ekklesia. What ekklesia means is it means the assembly. And specifically, the assembly of God's people. So not just any assembly. Not like, you know, the Laker game. Like the assembly of God's people. Friends, that's what the church is. It's the assembly of the people. It's the assembly of the new temple of God where his presence resides. Are you with me? I want you to picture this in your mind. For those of you visual learners, picture it in your mind. Friends, these first Christians, they didn't need the temple building anymore. They became the temple. So this begs the question, why did they attend the temple every day? They didn't need the temple. They're the new temple. Why did they go to the temple together every day? Here's the punchline to the joke. They continued to meet at the temple to worship God together. Like, sacrifices, no longer necessary because of Jesus' death, right? They're not, they're not sacrificing lambs. The lamb has been sacrificed for them once and for all. So they're not coming there to make these sin offerings, these, these sin sacrifices. The sacrifices stopped, but their worship didn't. In fact, it intensified. It got more passionate, more radical, and more beautiful. And they did it in response They did it in response for what God did in and through Jesus, the forgiveness of their sin through his blood instead of the blood of an animal or their very own blood. They did it in response to Jesus living the perfect life in their place. Religion says you can try to be righteous. You can do all these things to make yourself right with God. Jesus goes, no, you can't. That's why I came. I did it in your place. So they're, they're worshiping him in response for him, giving his blood for them, and for him giving the life, like the, every day of his life, perfectly in their place. Him crediting a righteousness to them that they could not earn for themselves. And, and this maybe is probably the most beautiful part, and for making it possible for God's spirit to be in them. No separation. And they're stoked. They're stoked. And as a response to all that God has done, they organize their entire life, every day of it, around being together to worship and enjoy him. The temple had always been a place where the people of God came together to offer their worship to God. 
So no more sin offerings, but intensified worship offerings in response to God's grace. We need to understand what a worship offering is. They're coming not for sacrifices, but to offer their worship. What's a worship offering? Again, ascribing worth, right? So they would do this a bunch of different ways. They would do this through praise, praise offerings. You've heard us talk about the seven Hebrew words of praise. I don't have time to get into that, but there's various ways that God says, praise me. You need it, but you were created to praise me uh, with your mind, with your body, with your, with your voice, with your soul, with your heart, with everything that you are. So the people of God would come together to offer him praise. It's a worship offering. They would come together to offer him prayers. They'd pray to him. They would, they would come to offer finances and, 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 and resources to further God's kingdom. They would come to offer uh, uh, offerings, worship offerings of service. And all of it in response to the grace they receive from God through Christ. The Christian, like Christian worship is a response, friends. So again, let me ask you a question. Who were the worship offerings for? Who were they for? For him. For him. They came to offer their worship their offerings of worship to him. It was all for him. They gathered as the new temple at the designated place for worship to offer God their worship. It was all for him. That was 2,000 years ago. A lot of time has passed since then, right? And sadly and tragically along the way, the church has been redefined I've told this story before, but I think it's really helpful. When um, my daughters have grown up in church planning contexts. And so all they've known is like the church is their family. And when we moved to Temecula to plant, this is the, this is the third uh, restored church plant that we've been a part of. There's four total. And when we moved here, Amelia was starting kindergarten, and so she's playing on the play- playground, and she comes home, and she's like, Dad, the kids here are great, and it's good, but like, some, some, one of the kids asked her on the playground, where do you go to church? And she was like, what do you mean? She couldn't even process this idea of going to church. She's like, I, I have a church family. Like, what do you mean go to church? She had no concept for the idea that the church was like an event that you attend. All she knew is like, it's my Auntie Karen or my Uncle Colton or my Uncle Kylo. Like, that's all, that's all that she knew. So she couldn't process this idea of going to church. Friends, over the last 2,000 years, sadly, tragically, Western culture has redefined what the church is. In the, in the West, we go to church. We show up to an event where we consume. We consume entertainment, inspiration, typically in the form of you know, music and a message. And, and here's the thing. If the product that we're consuming, music and message amongst other things, if the product that we're consuming isn't satisfying to us, what do we do? We go somewhere else. Our culture, it does the same thing with the church that we do with like a restaurant or 
a store, or any other consumer-related business. Now, I want you to compare that picture with what we see these first Christians devoting themselves to. They gathered as the true temple of God. Why? For him. For him. Worship offerings. For him. But our culture, listen, our culture has redefined not only what the church is, but what it's for. The church has gone from being the ecclesia. that gathered to offer worship to God and for God to an event that offers entertainment and inspiration to me. The focus has shifted from being for God to being for me. Friends, hear me. In love. That's the opposite of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is God in my place, but this redefined version is me in God's place. You see this? The essence of sin is me at the center. The essence of worship is God at the center. So listen, authentic, historic Christian worship is God at the center. Okay, now listen. Practically, language is super important. Some of you know I'm kind of a Nazi about that phrase, going to church. But listen, we don't go to church. We are the church, the ecclesia. And we gather for him because he is worth it. He's Lord and he's Savior. He's the king of all creation, man. He does not have to be kind to us. He does not have to be gracious to us. He does not have to be merciful or forgiving or faithful or loving even. He doesn't have to be. He chooses to be. He's worthy of my worship. And not only that, he's the God who made a way to dwell in me. All the while, me and every other person before me has rejected him in his ways. Yet he saves me from the wages of my sin, which is death. He's Lord and his Savior. He's worthy. So listen, can I challenge you? Please, friends, Can I challenge you to stop saying that? That you go to church, I'm going to church, I'm at church. Can I just challenge you? I know it's hard. This is a culture where it's like, it's ingrained, man. It is ingrained. In the same way my daughter had no concept, she had to like relearn, oh, this is a a thing. Like there's patience with that. That's cool. But can I challenge you to not say that? If not for your own heart, for our kids. So that the culture's definition of church as a product to consume doesn't become their definition. Because listen, it's way more dangerous and cunning than you think it is because it misrepresents what the church is. The church is the hope of the world. If we're going to reach the world, they need to be able to distinguish what the church actually is. It misrepresents what the church is and the purpose of why we gather, friends. Sunday worship gatherings are about us coming together as the temple of God's presence on the earth. Why? To offer God worship. Worship offerings, it's all for him. This entire gathering, primarily for him. Every element of our worship gathering is for who? Yes, great. 
You're, you're tracking with me. Okay, so think about this. I'm almost done. Think about this. Every element of the things that you experience in this gathering, every single element for him, okay, the band, when they lead us in song, everything that they're doing, all of it, it's an act of praise. It's an act of praise with intentionality to invite you to join them in what? In offerings of praise to God. Who is it for? Yes, it's for him. Do we enjoy it? Yes, because his presence is fullness of joy. Doesn't mean you don't get something from it. It's amazing. It's primarily for him. Okay? When we, people get weird about church and money. When we, when we set aside a time in the middle of our gathering going, we're going to collect an offering. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an offering to God. It's an act of worship to him. He is the source of everything that we have. And he invites us to join him in his redemptive work of advancing his kingdom. That takes money. But not just advancing his kingdom out there, but advancing his kingdom in here. Because we're people who are prone to greediness. I want to keep, this is mine. No, it's actually his. And he, he invites us to give it back to him to watch his kingdom advance. You with me in this? Every single element. When we pray, it's prayer offerings. Not to the sky, to him. When, when people come in here and they set things up, and when you stay late and you tear things down, like, what is that? It's, it's, it's kind of like actually what they did with the tabernacle, which I think is great. It's service to God and to each other. Kids ministry, right now, act of service. Why? So that parents can be freed up to give worship offerings to God. Even a sermon. Even a sermon. The point of any sermon is to present God's word in a personal and contextualized way to inspire what? Your worship. That's why we do the bulk of our praise time after the message. It's not the previews to the movie. If anything, this is the previews to the movie. Everything we do, friends, on a Sunday, it serves the purpose of giving worship offerings to God. It's all for him. That's why we call them Sunday worship gatherings. Because we gather for what? Worship, which is for him. So I want you to think of it this way. I want you to think of our entire time together on Sundays as various offerings being placed on the altar of your heart, offered voluntarily as an act of love for and devotion to and worship of who? Of him, of almighty God. We do it all for him because he's worth it. All right, I'll call the band up. I'll close in just a minute. We gotta know why we do what we do. If we're gonna hit the reset button as a church and really go, hey, this is who we are. This is where we're going. This is what we're gonna prioritize. We wanna take our discipleship to Jesus seriously. We gotta know why we do what we do. And we gotta see the grace in God inviting us to be able to do it. It's beautiful. <clears throat> All right, Chris, uh, scripture, it says that the church is at its best. The church is at its best when they're devoted to worshiping God together as the new temple and from meeting from house to house. It's both, like pedals on the bike, right? Not one or the other, both. Working in conjunction. Those are the two environments where you can devote yourself to God and his ways. 
And the early church devoted themselves to this. Do you see that's why we're so passionate about gospel community and about Sunday worship gatherings? We have two discipleship strategies. The early church devoted themselves to this and we cannot follow suit unless we know why we're here. So, can I ask you that question again? Why are you here today? Plenty of great reasons, I'm sure. Plenty of wonderful reasons. Why are you here today? I'm here to offer worship to my God in everything that I do. And I'm here to do it with you. Um, <laughs> have any of you guys seen the movie Jerry Maguire? Yeah? For those of you guys that haven't seen this movie, it's Tom Cruise, and he's a sports agent. I feel like I'm Herrick right now. I'm using a movie. Dude, he's discipling me. This is awesome. <clears throat> so Tom Cruise, he's a sports agent, right? And he's, he finds himself in the culture of his industry, and it just, like, is super unhealthy. And he writes this, like, manifesto and this whole thing, right? And he decides, he's like, he decides to leave the unhealthy culture behind to pursue a better way, right? And there's this famous scene where he shows up at his office and it's like all his coworkers and he kind of like hasn't slept the night before so he looks a little crazy. And he shows up at his office and on his way out, he tells everybody, you know, what's going on. He has this like famous scene, you know, where he's like, who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? And like one person ends up going with him. It's this awkward moment in the movie, you know? And friends, listen. The Western church, let me say this. The Western church culture is unhealthy. She's still the bride of Jesus. He loves his girl. But Western church culture is unhealthy because it's redefined what the church is from ecclesia to event. And it's redefined who's at the center from God to man. Listen, I'm leaving it behind. I'm leaving it behind to pursue a better way, God's way. And sorry for the being overly dramatic, but what I want to know is who's coming with me? And listen, you don't have to come. There's so much love for you and grace for you. There's plenty of other churches that will love you and equip you by God's grace. You don't have to come, but it's where we are headed as a church. reset button has been hit, like launch is engaged. That's where we're going. Not because I think it's good or Herrick thinks it's good or gospel community leaders think it's good, but because the word of God shows us the way. Because Jesus is the king and he knows better and he's worth it. He's the prize. He is the prize at the end. And he is the prize right now. Will you stand with me? I want to pray for us.
just gonna listen and see if God wants to highlight something before we pray. highlighting his desire to fill people with his spirit. He wants to be with you. He wants to be, he wants to dwell in you. He wants to fill you with his presence. I think for some of you, I think there's two people that I feel like he's highlighting. There's the person who you've yet to be filled with his spirit. And today's the day he wants to, he wants to fill you with his spirit. And there's another person I feel like he's highlighting and that's the person I got a picture of like uh, a soda fountain and this idea of like free refills. I feel like there's a refill that God wants to do this morning in some of you. You've tasted and seen before and you need a fresh filling of his spirit. So if either one of those is you, I wanna ask you just as as an act of trust and an act of like, I want you, God, to just kind of open yourself up to him. You can do that with your hands. You can do that with your heart, but do it with some form of your physical body as an act. You need to take action if you want him, not to earn things from him, but to display your trust. That's you, some form. He'll bring it to your mind. For some of you, it's gonna be holding your hands out. you to honor the faith in this room, Lord. Men and women who desire you because they're seeing more and more about how you desire them. To dwell in them, to take residence up in them. So would you fill, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Every man and woman in this space right now whose desire is more of you. Would you honor their faith? Would you fill them? personal ways the love of Jesus for them specifically and Lord would you make us a people who are devoted to worshiping you together where you are the center of our life you are the sun in our solar system not us and we get to receive all the benefits the inheritance of children as children of God make us a people who are devoted to worshiping you together. Thank you, Jesus, for making it possible. We love you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.